Hey, Alyssa. Welcome back. Hey, Sam. Thanks. Yeah, welcome no back to our podcast. Dr. Lori Brado, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Great to see you both. Stuck at the office or traffic jam. Time to take it easy with Alyssa and Sam. Is that show you know? A pro. Yeah, we're so excited to have you back, and so are all of our listeners. Everyone was amped when they heard. Yeah, if uh, if any of you missed the Debunking Desire episode, go back and watch it, number one. We'll link it in the description box. Um, but Dr. Lori Brado, I'm going to read off of your website because you have so many accolades. <laughs> I was making an Instagram story, and I was like, it, Instagram literally won't let me fit all of the amazing that you are onto my story. <laughs> Dr. Lori Brado is the director of the UBC Sexual Health Laboratory, a Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health, a professor at the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, UBC Executive Director of Women's Health Research Institute, and a registered psychologist. <laughs> Correct? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think that's mostly true. <laughs> you see what I mean? We were listening back to our episode just previously. Um, and in the beginning of our first episode, when you and I met, I was like, I'm intimidated already. <laughs> and you said, don't be. Um, but our last podcast was really just so, it was so beneficial for Sam and I as well as all of our followers. We uh, talked about sexual desire and um, you, you've made so many great points and it was so easy to digest, which, it, you know, not always readily available, ways that you can make it feel comfortable and, and easy to hear as well. So we asked Dr. Brado if she would come back on the podcast and she agreed. So thank you so much. Honestly, I know that you're so busy with, with all of this going on. So we, we do so appreciate your time. Um, and this time we passed the mic kind of onto our followers and we asked if you guys had any questions uh, that hopefully Dr. Brado could answer and you came through. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to ask your questions to Dr. Brado. I think we can just jump right into it here. So one of the first questions, this is kind of like a little bit of a three part, um, but one of the first questions was, how do you break through the barrier of feeling good to touch yourself? Is it normal for women to feel uncomfortable to masturbate? And why is there so much stigma around it? Yeah, wow, that <laughs> that three part question packs <laughs> a lot of punch. So um, let, let's start with the, um, is it normal for women to feel uncomfortable? I'll say it's common but it's not normal. It is not normal to feel uncomfortable to masturbate. That's completely um, a societal creation that um, suggests that self-pleasure in women is wrong, it's dirty, it's bad. Um, I think a really good illustration of this is when you look at young children who quite easily and without stigma might touch themselves uh, because it feels good and they don't necessarily link that to sexuality or wanting to have sex with someone they touch because it feels good and often they come across it by accident in the bath or maybe rubbing against their clothing or the side of their bed and so um the 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 inclination to feel good and feel pleasure and touch is natural it's an evolved process it's something that is healthy um, but it is also something that has been highly highly stigmatized, even demonized 
um, especially mm -hmm. when we consider women's um, self-pleasure and, and self-touch. So, you know, when we look at historic, when we look at history, because history, in some ways, history is still very much with us today. Um, and we look at historically how women's illnesses, whether they were medical illnesses or psychological illnesses like anxiety, depression, et cetera, how they were diagnosed. And they tended to all be conceptualized as um, hysteria, right? And we still use that term today, hysteria. Don't be hysterical. But what it actually meant in the past was um, hysteria referred to a wandering womb, right? So imagine the uterus is wandering through the body. And that was thought to be the source of a lot of women's, women's distress and illnesses. And it turned out that the only treatment for this wandering womb was for the woman to orgasm, not through her own hand, <laughs> through a man. <laughs> so, uh, but of how course, convenient. <laughs> so male physicians had to relieve the woman of this wandering oh. womb by bringing her to orgasm great movie hysteria that depicts this um, and lots of plays and et cetera through, through time have depicted this. Um, and over time that actually gave way to the development of the vibrator because these poor men's hands were getting so sore bringing women to orgasm. <laughs> they, needed, they needed something more efficient. But again, so you, oh. we look at even women's, the history of women's pleasure through a medical lens was used to treat an illness and it could only be delivered at the hands of a man. So, I mean, it mm. sounds preposterous today. It sounds absolutely insane. First of all, there's no such thing as a wandering uterus. Second thing, <laughs> orgasms as great as they are, can't cure diabetes. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> they can be great for anxiety and mood relieving, but they can't cure a lot of <laughs> medical illnesses. But there's still that lingering um, notion that women's pleasure, masturbation, orgasm, not only is bad, we can't talk about it. And if you do talk about it, then you're dirty. So we don't want to say that it's normal, although it is common. And of course, one of the ways of debunking that um, is to talk about it. It's to normalize it. Sometimes because I work within a health setting, I do talk about it through the lens of health. Sexual health is a part of general health. When people are healthy, their sex is healthy. When sex is healthy, their mood is better. Their global quality of life is better. So when we talk about it through that lens, then there's not so much of a dirty, dark cloud that surrounds sex and pleasure as being something separate and should be kept in the in the closet. Rather, it's a part of who we are. So mm -hmm. long-winded answer. Um, <laughs> my hope is that the, the person who wrote this question in feels um, normal if they want to explore their bodies if they do masturbate, if they derive pleasure through masturbation and orgasm, or if they're in an earlier stage of their exploration and they maybe haven't masturbated before or, or experienced orgasm through masturbation, that they feel permission to do so. This is a good, normal, healthy thing. I think that's just... I mean, every single time you talk, we were like listening back to that podcast and I was like, she's just the best. I just love her. <laughs> but Actually, I just... I've got one more point that is so relevant <laughs> right now in the time of the pandemic, right? Um, and, and I'm assuming that this will air and folks will be listening while we're still all in solitary confinement. But um, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, it, what was really interesting is, uh, you know, over the course of the pandemic, our public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, had been asked many, many times, like, what do people do with their sexuality? And especially for if someone's not in, in a relationship or they enjoy casual sex or they have friends with benefits, 
and yet all the recommendations are, you know, stay isolated, stay by yourself. She's been on the record in saying masturbation is a healthy thing. Um, she said other great things about sex, uh, which we can get into later if it goes there. But I, I thought that was so great to have this very public image um, really celebrating that you can still enjoy sex through masturbation. I I agree. And I think that it's interesting that there there was a sort of like humorous meme that was going around on Twitter, uh, mostly about Canadians, because Dr. Bonnie Henry was talking about glory holes as being like an option for <laughs> sex. On CDC too. Yeah, CDC. And it's just, maybe it was the CDC, The I guess. BC CDC, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and I just think it's interesting that so many people found it to be only humorous because it's sex related. But as you state, right, and I mean, just in my own knowledge, you know, <laughs> dealing with like anxiety and, you know, mood disorders and things like that, you know, healthy sex, sex in general, consensual does help with all of these feelings that we're now feeling being in a pandemic. So it was interesting to me to watch. So I, I, I personally really enjoy talking about sex. I, I, I'm a very open book in my personal life with my friends. So it was just interesting for me to see people reacting in such a way. And it really fed into the idea that sex isn't as normalized as I thought it was because yeah. I grew up in a really sex positive household. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was kind of the other part of that question was how do you break through the barrier of feeling good to touch yourself? And I think that, you know, it's, it, it, there's so many different reasons like you had mentioned historically why you know there's like this stigma around it but also like religion and um how your household is about sex and all of those things can kind of go into that and it's interesting like I've had friends that have struggled to you know talk about that kind of thing and 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 even to like want to pleasure themselves or feel comfortable doing so because of how they were raised so in your opinion, what's, how do you, how do you start breaking down those barriers? Yeah, you know, I, I've recently been rereading a lot of Betty Dodson's work and um, uh, partly because she passed away very recently. Um, uh, actually, she died on Halloween, which is so interesting because she often referred to herself as the high priestess of masturbation. So Betty Dodson, <laughs> um, you know, she, so she passed away in her, in the, in her mid nineties and she's, she's really been credited um, for changing the conversation around women's pleasure and masturbation. She's written many, many books. She grew up in New York City um, in, you know, the, the 30s. She was yeah, born in the early 1930s. Um, and over time, just through her life as an artist and being an erotic artist, um, discovered in the 40s and 50s how um, repressed people were in talking about masturbation and their bodies and sexual pleasure. And so she really took this bull by the horns, being the staunch feminist that she was, um, very no-nonsense, and said, you know, we need to crack this conversation and start really normalizing, celebrating women's sexuality. So spent really the next 40 years of her life running body sex groups, which essentially involved, they were largely educational. Um, she brought women into a, into a circle in a private room in a locked environment and um, basically normalized their using a handheld mirror, looking at their own genitals, exploring 
using a vibrator or their hand if they wished. And a lot of them were there, were there because they grew up in families or households where sex was very repressed, where you couldn't talk about it without fear of punishment or repercussion of some way. Um, and so Betty Dodson has uh, really been an icon in, in the sex research and sex therapy field, but I actually think for the world, for really putting the conversation on the map and in particular at a time when, I mean, think, I, I can't even think about it because I wasn't around in the 40s, 50s or 60s, <laughs> but this was, I mean, this was a time when women were the housewife and they took care of domestic chores and there was no talk of and no time for masturbation and pleasure. And she just broke down all those walls. Um, so I love her writing. I love the, I mean, when I read her writing, I feel validated and normalized and I'm in this field. Um, and yet I yeah. still get caught up in all the same myths, stereotypes, expectations that everyone else does. I'm not protected in any way. I just have more access to the science to show me the light in some way. So um, highly recommend that your listeners pick up any of Betty Dodson's work. Um, she's got some great audio uh, recordings as well. She was actually on one of the Gwyneth Paltrow Goop series episodes um, oh, no, uh, no showing the, the body sex groups. So, um, you know, doing some reading on your own can, can be a great way to do that. Another great book um, is Come As You Are by a terrific friend of mine, Emily Nagoski, um, also really normalizes women's sexuality while at the same, same time folding in a lot of accurate information about anatomy and health and, you know, prevalence numbers and that sort of thing. So that's where I would start. And often that feels like a safe place for people to start is getting information on your own. Um, information and education can often be the best armor um, and that's why doing podcasts like this is so great, because this is one of the ways that we can take the accurate science field information and make sure it gets into the hands of people who can benefit the most from it. Yeah, for sure. One of the next questions was, um, oh, this is such a like tough one, too. Um, we kind of talked about this before the podcast started, but um, how to talk to your partner about having an incurable STI, um, such as herpes uh before being intimate and i think we had done well we had done an episode talking about stis and stds um and it it is interesting how common they are but how incredibly stigmatized they are and it's just that much harder when you then are entering into um a relationship well and even like the way that we think about those questions like oh it's a tough one even that is like frustrating mm -hmm. to me because I agree I do think that it's tough and um I I think that it's even being very open and comfortable talking about my sexuality and everything like that I still feel uncomfortable being like do you mind getting an STI screening yeah. or something like that because it's not as normalized and as much as we're taught you can ask your partner when, when you're actually getting to that point yeah it's you know it's it's it can be uncomfortable but it does not have to be sort of thing. It shouldn't be. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I think this is part of a much bigger question around communication, right? So how do we talk to a partner about pleasure? How do we talk to a partner about the fact that the sex we've been having for the last 10 years actually hurts me and I've never told you? How do we talk about the fact that that this thing that you do during sex actually really turns me off? How do we talk about the fact that I really want to try on this kink and I'm scared to because I think that you're going to think I'm a freak if I suggest it? So it's really part of a bigger conversation around communication. Um, 
And I might give a slightly different answer depending on if you're in a relationship or not, um, because I think there's a lot more freedoms if you're not in a relationship with someone for the first, if someone you're just meeting for the for the first time. And I will come back to the STI bit in a sec, but in 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 some way, you know, at the start of a relationship, you have a blank canvas. You have an opportunity to kind of set the stage for how are we going to talk? How, how are we going to handle this communication and, and sex? Um, aspect of our, of our relationship. Um, and sometimes if you're in a longer term relationship where you've never really talked about it and now suddenly you want to because some woman on a podcast suggested it's a good thing to do <laughs> and it is, so you should listen, um, that can feel a lot more awkward to go from never talking about it to all of a sudden, hey, I want to start talking about it, this, yeah. Yeah, right? So in the case of, of uh, a person who's in a, in a new relationship or, or single or maybe hooking up with people who outside of a, say, sustained monogamous relationship, um, you can you can sort you can do it any any way you want. And the best way to do that is as early as possible, always folded within a conversation of consent um, and in an assertive way. So using I language. Right. So I my sexuality is important to me. I've learned from past experience. I've learned from reading this, et cetera. Um, and we always say use I language as opposed to you language because it feels a lot less blaming, right? So mm-hmm. um, I really enjoy sexuality that involves mutual touching versus you should really touch me more often, <laughs> right? So you can just sort yeah, of hear right. the sense of blaming that that comes from that. So in the way of an, of an STI, um, yeah, it, it can feel awkward. It can feel a bit embarrassing. However, when we look at just how prevalent STIs are, so whether it's herpes, um, which you know two thirds of of people currently carry the the herpes virus, or something like HPV, where the data tell us that if you have been sexually active in your life, there's a very good chance that you've encountered HPV. So either you have it or you've had it and you've cleared it or you've been with a partner who's ha- who has HPV, et cetera. So these are really prevalent, prevalent STIs and they're fairly silent, uh, you know, with some exceptions, obviously with um, herpes, if a person's in the midst of an outbreak, you can see sores, the person can feel them, wouldn't advise engaging in, in um, genital sexual activity at the time of an outbreak. First of all, it can be painful. Second of all, it can increase the chance of, of um, transmitting the, the virus to another person. Um, uh, so yeah, so, so recognizing that these are really, really common suggests that there's a chance maybe this partner also has an STI or has been with other partners with STIs, et cetera. In the context of a longer term relationship, um, first and foremost, um, don't have difficult conversations or difficult or, or deep conversations about sex while you're having sex. Like you don't want to be having sex and then say, hey, hang on a second. I need to tell you something. <laughs> I've discovered yeah. I have I've herpes. You, you want to have these conversations when you're feeling neutral, when you're feeling a good balance of, you know, emotion and, and ration, right? You don't want to be feeling overly emotional. You want to think through what you're saying, again, using your eye language. Um, and you want to make sure that you're armed with data. So scientific information. So if you do have an STI, make sure you know which one it, it is. Um, try and get some um, accurate information about 
What are the chances of transmitting it to a partner? What are the kinds of activities that the two of you can engage in that reduce or eliminate the chance of transmission? Um, options for sexual health. So listeners in British Columbia, Options for Sexual Health is a goldmine source of information. They have a free anonymous call-in telephone line uh, called Sex Sense. So through optionsforsexualhealth.org, you can click on the website and click on Sex Sense. Um, you talk to a sexual health nurse or clinician and can ask questions like this, like what is the chances of me transmitting HPV or herpes or something else to my partner? Um, totally anonymous and again, good, accurate, accurate information. Um, the last thing I'll say about communication is don't feel like you have to have the whole conversation in one sitting, right? So mm -hmm. you can introduce the conversation and you can even say, you know, hey, I was listening to this podcast that really emphasized how important it is, how healthy it is for couples to talk about sex. And they actually recommended that, that that be a topic of conversation that's an ongoing conversation in the same way that we talk about our goals and wishes and dreams for life and you know where we want to go on our vacation sex might also be something that we re we return to in conversation um, that becomes really important especially if, if a person has you know hi histories of, of trauma or really negative experiences that they, may, they maybe have been keeping to themselves for a long time and yet they really want to share that information with a partner um, that might also be something that you know you save for your for the second or third or, or fourth conversation so bottom line communication is great um it is more than great <laughs> that's kind of a diluted down <laughs> version necessary. Yeah. It's necessary the research tells us that when we look at the couples that have the best most satisfying sex well into their old years one of the biggest predictors is good communication good communication about sex so that might be reason enough on its own if you want to have great sex when you're 80 start talking about it now <laughs> yeah i'm trying to ensure my future here yeah <laughs> Um, it was interesting that I had like such a strong reaction when you um, said that, you know, when you're talking to your partner about this or, you know, someone that you might be going into like a sexual relationship with, um, that they might have already been with somebody that has had an STI or STD before. Um, and it's I was just like, oh, yeah, I would have never thought about that because I think it's so common um for people to be struggling with something like this or anything like anxiety, depression, um, whatever it may be to feel like they're, they must be the only one and it must not be that common. And I, this is going to be the first time this person's ever heard this. And that's so not true necessarily, <laughs> but I yeah, haven't even thought, thought about, about it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thanks for emphasizing that point. And, you know, and the same, the same applies to, um, problems with, with sexuality. We, we do spend, and I spend a lot of time talking about low desire and lack of pleasure in women. Um, but low desire in men is really, really common. I see a lot of young men in my practice who are really struggling with their lack of interest in sex or struggles with erections or, um, not reaching climax or ejaculating too quickly. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they're far more common than, uh, than we think they are. So if, if you're experiencing it, know that you're definitely not alone and there's actually a good chance your partner may, may relate directly to what you're experiencing. Yeah. Such a good point. Um, okay. Uh, one of the next questions was, um, why does sperm sometimes physically hurt my vagina? What happens? Yeah. So, 
uh, sperm is not supposed to hurt the vagina. <laughs> so if it, if it is hurting, um, you definitely want to see, um, you know, your, your primary health care provider. If your primary health care provider is not someone with a lot of specialty in gynecologic health, women's health, ask for a referral to a gynecologist. Um, we do know that some women can actually have an allergy to sperm. Um, which is, is oh, terrible if, if, uh, if she is a woman who wants to enjoy uh -huh. sperm in her vagina, that can be a terrible <laughs> experience to have. Um, so that's yeah, really yeah. the only way to know for sure is, is to have proper screening done. Now we also know, and in our, the last time we had a conversation, we talked a lot about genital pain and just how common that is this kind of umbrella, um, experience called vulvodynia, which essentially means pain somewhere in the vulva or vagina. Really common affects about you know twenty five percent, up to twenty five percent of of women, um, and so it it is possible that it's not necessarily the the sperm that's eliciting the pain, but it's the actual penetration that's eliciting the pain. Um, and again, here is where doing a, a careful physical exam with a, a, a physician you trust and someone who understands women's health is gonna be really important to um, disentangle those things. Um, the other consideration, just thinking about other things that can act as irritants, sometimes uh, flavor-based um, lubricants that have lots of extra mm -hmm. additives in them, et cetera, can, be, can cause that irritation, especially if a person say has eczema or is prone to skin conditions more generally. That can be a major culprit as well. Um, I'm a big fan, big proponent of lubricants and a big proponent of neutral, natural lubricants. No colors, no flavors, <laughs> go natural. Think coconut oil, think water-based or silicon-based um, simple because they can certainly aggravate the, the vagina over time. Do you know what's interesting? I have two things to say, number one, the first time somebody suggested coconut oil, I was like, are you crazy? I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to get a yeast infection. Um, that's just like a funny add-on. But um, number two, I didn't realize, because I've been in quite a few long-term relationships with like very short spurts of not being in a relationship. Um, so it's interesting for me to experience these different relationships over a long period of time. But I didn't realize that lube had such like a stigma around mm -hmm. it because I had been in a relationship where that was like very open and communicative and lube friendly and lube friendly man mm -hmm. yeah and then I didn't realize even through talking with my followers um that so many partners are offended if you need lube or they're in they're made to feel embarrassed that they would like to use lube yeah and for me I'm like whatever makes me feel good I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Within the realm of, of consent, obviously. But if it would make me feel better to use a lubrication, why does why does that need to be anything more? Like a than, cause of offense. Yeah. Why does it need to be anything more than I would like to use lubrication for this action? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this takes us back to question two around communication. <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> let's, let's knock this myth out of the park. And one way to do that is, you know, I love sex and sex always feels better when lube's involved and it has nothing to do with my ability, your performance or the quality of the sex. Um, and you just normalize it. So, uh, but yeah, I think, Alyssa, you're totally right in that sometimes um, partners might hold their own myths that, oh, if she needs lube, that means I'm not stimulating her adequately. Or she might feel, 
oh, I need lube because I'm dry and I can't, you know, there's something wrong with me. Now, certainly there are some instances where there's um, hormonal fluctuations that give way to dryness, breastfeeding, uh, right before the period, peri and postmenopause um, that, that make dryness more likely and thus lube mandatory, but they shouldn't, it, lube should not be reserved for only those instances. They're really intended to make sex feel better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There is another question on here. I think it's pretty far down, but um, someone had asked, I believe, um, why why some people don't produce their own lubrication. But um, I just kind of want to echo the the idea that there's absolutely nothing wrong with you if you don't produce the lubrication that you feel like you should be air quotes should be yeah I'm obviously not an expert but just I want that to be very <laughs> apparent there's I don't feel like there's like a spectrum of wetness we're trying to achieve here yeah. <laughs> I can't find that question but I was just thinking that too to bring it up yeah so so if your listeners take only one thing out of this whole conversation <laughs> two words use lube no three words yeah. use <laughs> lube every time <laughs> that's it yeah um the next question was um how to deal with having a lower libido than your partner um and there's a lot of different versions a lot of different um questions that go into this but let's let's start with that and then if there's anything that was left unanswered from all the questions that are part of that subset. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, the question is how to deal with a situation where your level of, of desire is lower than your partner's, which we call discrepant desire. Um, and so, you know, what's important to note is that it's if, if the person with the lower desire was in a relationship with someone who had the same level of desire as them, there would be no discrepancy. Right. So that I, I emphasize that mm -hmm. the discrepancy, because often the lower desire partner is made to feel like there's something wrong with them. Right. But right. maybe it's the other person whose desire is too high. So this emphasizes why it's always really important to think about desire within a kind of couple or dyadic framework. So it is important to, to, to question, does the other person have, you know, hypersexuality? Do they have compulsive sex? Are they on the sex addiction spectrum? Um, and so sometimes talking to a qualified um, sex therapist professional can help decipher those kinds of situations. But let's take the situation where indeed the, the lower desire person does indeed have, have low desire and it bothers them. Or maybe they're a person that at one point in their life or earlier in their relationship, they enjoyed sex a lot more, they initiated a lot more, and now it's gone down really common, more common in women than in men. Um, and interestingly, there's not a really strong age effect. It's not that, you know, you have your highest desire in your 20s and then it just starts to go down like a straight line after that for women. For, for men, it very, it very much is a straight line and it's associated a lot more with testosterone in, in men and it's not in women. Um, so in, in women, though, the common causes are relationship duration. So the longer you're in the same relationship, and especially if you're doing the same things over and over, um, or let's say uh, what happens much more commonly is you stop doing the things 
that elicit your desire, right? So earlier mm -hmm. on in a relationship, there would be a lot of buildup. There would be anticipation. You'd say to a partner, oh, we're going to have sex tonight. We're going to have sex tonight. You know, mm -hmm. and you go about your day and you send notes to your partner, or maybe you go on a, you know, you have a wonderful adventure together and there's the, like foreplay is over the course of many, many hours, or maybe even over the course of many, many days. And so um, unfortunately, what happens in a longer term relationship for a whole variety of different reasons is a lot of those things that elicit desire, we're simply not doing anymore. So it's a really simple formula. Desire thrives in novelty. Desire thrives in the kind of mystery, in the unknown, in the unexpected, um, but also in the anticipation and in the craving. And so when we eliminate those from our life and our relationship, low desire or loss of desire is going to be a natural consequence. Um, so before you rush out and seek a prescription to restore your desire, by the way, the, that, that pill that does exist in Canada really does not work. And it's got a whole long list of side effects, plus it's expensive. Da, 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 da. I could go on and on about how um, <laughs> ineffective that medication is. Um, but, but, but before you even think about that, think about, you know, was there a time in my life when my desire was a lot higher? And what was I doing? What was I, what, what were we doing differently then that we're not doing now? Now you can't recreate um, a brand new relationship in the context of a longer term one, especially when there's bills, kids, mortgages, you know, <laughs> dirty laundry, yeah. all of those things. But <laughs> the notion of novelty um, doing things differently, seeking inspiration from things you've read or, or um, lots of great um, instructional sex videos. So trying different positions, having sex at different times of the day, et cetera, can be a great way to cultivate desire again. So when we think about cultivating desire, it's important to think about, about novelty. Um, this, the second thing that I'll say, um, and I'll try and say it briefly because I've written a whole book on it, but it's just the role of kind of in inattention and distraction um, and often in in uh, the low desire situation uh, the person is preoccupied with thoughts worries distractions their body is having sex but their mind really is not they're elsewhere um, and so mindfulness skills um, which um, are simple though not easy so simple in that it's really just about practicing present moment awareness and doing so in a kind, compassionate way, um, but not easy because we've become so heavily trained to be distracted and to multitask. And yes, we bring that into our sexual encounters. Um, so that can also be a really helpful way. And, and our research team and others around the world have really studied how mindfulness works, um, how long does it last? And, and it really, really is an effective tool. And I recommend it to everyone, men, women, all genders, uh, when it comes to, to increasing pleasure and increasing desire. Um, I was interesting while you were talking about uh, like different, like increasing that novelty kind of thing and trying new positions and stuff like that. I was thinking about how, like, what is there in the way of resources beyond porn <laughs> like for things like that because um I know for me I've always felt like it's it's pretty apparent that like much of like the porn that's created is created through like a male gaze um and created to be you know enjoyed more so by 
men and so that's kind of like turned me away from it more because I just feel like well this isn't really like what I'm dying to see like that's not I know that that doesn't feel good and so Mm. watching it happen doesn't (laughs) make me feel excited about sex so I'm curious like is there anything in the way of resources for that that isn't necessarily just traditional porn Um, Such an important question, Sam, because unfortunately, um, sex education in our school system is uh, not where it should be. And that's a gross understatement. It's it's nearly abysmal um, sex education in our in our school systems. Um, And so it means that a lot of young people are getting their sex education from porn. Um, And it's also why we're seeing increasing rates of women being uncomfortable with their labia, feeling like their labias are a, labia are asymmetrical, right? So the two inner lips, uh, for, for those of you who aren't sure what I'm talking about by labia, so labia or lips. So very, very normal and super common for the labia to be different sizes, often for the labia to hang outside the outer labia or the outer lips. But if porn is our only source of education and information, we might have a very single narrow narrow view that um, all vulvas are hairless, all inner labia are tight and symmetrical and clean, that there are never any odors, that, you know, the clitoris is easily easy to find, right? So all of these, (laughs) all of these pieces of information, uh, unfortunately, um, give give rise to our sex education. And of course, if we don't question that or a partner never questions that, that's all we're left with. Now, thankfully, there are actually some really good resources out there. Um, just last year, um, Jen Gunter, who's a wonderful friend of mine, wrote um, The Vagina Bible. Um, so yes, it is a book all about vaginas, but you don't have to have a vagina to read it or benefit from it. But because she's a gynecologist, she's quit- Twitter's resident gynecologist. Um, she infuses a lot of really accurate um, and fun uh, information about women, their vulvas, their bodies, their sex. So that I think is a must, like there's a reason it's called the, a Bible. I think it is. <laughs> if, you, if you plan to interact with a vagina at any point in your life, you need to read this book, whether you own one or, or you don't. Um, I mentioned um, options for sexual health. Also, they've got lots of free online resources. Um, anatomy photos, etc. And then there's um, sexuality and you so sexuality and you as in letter u.ca, um, which is the Sex Information Education Council of Canada, they have lots of online information. So yeah, it, it does require a bit more sort of digging around to find this information. But it, but um, once someone is pointed in the right direction, it's pre- pretty easy to find online and and so worth the effort to get this information. Yeah. yeah. And and we can link all those um, as well in the description box. I also have to say like you and the friends that you've mentioned, you guys just must have the best conversations. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Sam speaking, and I- speaking, speaking of, of uh, Jen, if your listeners haven't watched uh, Jen's Blaining, it was uh, on the CBC Gem Network last year and it was a 10 part series really based on her book, The Vagina Bible. Um, and, uh, if you jump ahead to the 10th episode, you'll see Jen and I building clitorises out of clay. Um, and so we're, we're building them out of clay, but we're really using it as an opportunity to talk about women's bodies and normalize the clitoris and that sort of thing. So great, great series to watch. (laughs) That's awesome.
just a moment to thank today's first sponsor, which is Skillshare. Skillshare, our first ad of 2021. How fitting. It is, really. <laughs> if you guys don't know what Skillshare is, it is an online learning community with thousands and thousands of classes that you can take. We know that 2020 had a lot of uncertainty and no matter what 2021 brings, you can spend it creating something meaningful with Skillshare. What I love about Skillshare, what can I say that I honestly haven't already said <laughs> about Skillshare, but what I love is that the classes keep coming, you know, like every time I sign on to Skillshare, I find a new class that I'm interested in and it, it really just keeps me motivated to learn new things and also to build upon the creative projects that I've already started. Well, and even like things that you know, work for different parts of your life as well, because I find like, so right now I'm in the thick of um, launching this makeup brand that I'm working on. And something that just came up on their new class list is uh, DIY product photography, style and shoot creative stills taught by Rachel Gulotta and Daniel Inskeep, photographers at Mango Street Lab. Running a brand is shockingly expensive <laughs> yeah <laughs> there was a lot of things in the end where we you know kind of were like what can we do ourselves to save costs and product photography was one of the things that we chose to do in-house ourselves and so I just thought that was really cool like it's just no matter where you're at in your life no matter what kind of like new interests you have or new like hobbies you have there's class for you man yeah, I've been taking on some kind of e-commerce situations in my life. And without taking a Skillshare class, I realized how incredibly hard it is to learn things as you're doing them. Just like on your own. Just on your own, <laughs> yeah. And then I was going through the freelance and entrepreneurship um, kind of category. And there's just so many options. And I was like, Ugh, I, I should have known. I should have <laughs> known to just go to Skillshare first. And Skillshare is also incredibly affordable, especially when compared to pricey in-person classes and workshops, a lot of which we, you know, can't really go to today anyway. An annual subscription is less than $10 a month. So you guys can explore your creativity at Skillshare.com approachable and get a free trial of a premium membership. That's Skillshare.com approachable for a free trial of a premium membership. Thank you so much, Skillshare. Another big thank you to Talkspace, which is the second sponsor of this episode. No secret that 2020 was a tricky year mm -hmm. and now we're kind of going into 2021 with really similar, you know, circumstances. A lot of people are having to work from home, um, be around like the people in their household a lot more than normal. It's just really, really different um, new kind of times we're, we're experiencing. And I think that's obviously been very, very difficult on a lot of people. We've all been dealing with a lot more stress than usual and... Um, I just think it's always a good idea to be able to get support from a therapist to figure out how to find peace and quiet within yourself. Yeah, I think it's also no secret that we're really big advocates of therapy. And for myself anyway, I know that it's a, it's a little bit harder for me to go into, you know, our therapist right now. And um, I think it's so great that Talkspace offers therapy online. It can also feel a little bit less anxiety ridden. I know that when I went in for the first time face to face, it was it was a lot of anxiety for me to do that. And I think that it's such a beneficial thing, kind of like the same thing as people taking like a gym class, but online it feels a little bit different than having to like walk into the gym and like really make yourself vulnerable in that way when you're already about to make yourself vulnerable by speaking about your experience with someone else yeah you can kind of be in your comfort space and the other thing as well I mean we've talked about therapy at length on the podcast and it always bears repeating that therapy is oftentimes seen as a luxury because it's so expensive 
it's really not that accessible. So online therapy is like such a good option for that. Talkspace has dedicated therapists on the platform 24 seven, and it's a fraction of the cost um, in comparison to in-person therapy. Yeah, you can sign up online and start therapy the same day that you sign up. Depending on the plan you choose, you can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. So it's super convenient to have the, the virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. They have thousands of licensed therapists with years of experience in over 40 specialties. Everything from depression to anxiety, substance abuse, trauma, anger management, and so on. So no matter what you're dealing with, there's someone that can help you. As a listener of Approachable, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com or download the app and make sure to use code Approachable to get $100 off your first month. That's code Approachable at Talkspace.com. Thank you so much, Talkspace. So kind of attached to that other question about having a lower libido um, was how often should you be having sex with your partner? Is it bad if it isn't often? Um, yeah, so it's so, uh, wow, um, that's, yeah, <laughs> I'm like tongue tied here. It's such a common question, right? Like what's the normal amount of sex that one should be having? And you're going to hate my answer. Um, but it's four times a week. No, I'm just kidding. It's not four times a week. That's <laughs> <laughs> not my answer. My answer is it's always quality over quantity. So you're, if you're having bad, painful, unenjoyable, unconsensual, but frequent sex, um, that's a straight line to resentment over time. So you really want to be thinking about quality. Are the encounters positive? Do you look forward to them? Do you feel good? Um, you know, do you have those good physical and emotional feelings afterwards? Whenever I give that answer, people still say, yes, but yes, but I need a number. So this has been studied in the scientific literature. Um, and interestingly, a study came out last year, really, really large study um, that looked at the frequency of sex today versus 20 years ago. Um, and the rates are going down. So when you look at, say, the average couple, um, in, in a long-term relationship, which is really anything more than about a year, the average is about once per week, right? So huge range from once a year through two, four times a week, but huge range. Um, so compared to 20 years ago, um, where it was about one and a half times a week, right? Or three-ish times every, every two weeks or so. So the rates are going down. But what we are seeing is that people are starting to become a bit more... Um, I'm not going to say experimental because, you know, masturbation is not an experiment, but they are engaging in other kinds of, of sexual activity. And we actually saw that during the COVID pandemic that overall, while, say, intercourse rates went down, people started to engage more in other kinds of sexual activities. So cyber sex and mutual masturbation, masturbation on your own, oral sex. So it seems like those um, activities are, are going up. Um, and we're also seeing rates of um, sexual abuse and non-consensual sex start to slowly creep down, which I think is a good thing. It can't creep down fast enough, in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, so that's. Uh, but, but we do want to keep consent in mind when we're talking about the question about what's a normal quote normal frequency of sex. Because if you're engaging in sex just to avoid a fight, or just because you know if, if you don't, then your partner becomes belligerent or difficult to be around. 
um, then again, that's unsafe. We would never recommend sex in, in that kind of a situation. That's where, where, where you want to get help and you want to talk to someone um, and get yourself to safety. Um, so yeah, long answer. And I didn't answer the question, although I think I snuck in about <laughs> once a week in there, according to the, to the literature. Another question just to um, kind of stay on the topic of lower libido as well is um, how to counteract the effect of antidepressants on sexual desire. And that's something that it's, I actually felt really, I can't remember if we talked about this last time or not, but um, when I had like made the decision to go on antidepressants, I felt super uncomfortable talking to my doctor about it and being like, I, because I had read that a lot of them can cause, um, you know, issues with lower libidos and stuff like that. Um, and I was already struggling with that through my depression. And so it was so uncomfortable to be like, it, it, it almost felt trivial to bring up, like, why should this matter? Um, in the grand scheme of things, like, obviously, I'm struggling, and I need help and stuff like that. So like, why does this matter? That's kind of how I felt bringing it up. So I thought that that was a, a good one to touch on. Um, yeah, thank, thanks for um, being so open and vulnerable around your own experience, Sam. I think it's important because um, a lot of people don't don't talk about that fear. Um, and we know that a lot of people will not go on a medication, whether it's an antidepressant or another medication because of fear of how will this impact my sexuality. Um, but at the same time, you know, de depression can be a major, major uh, detriment to sexual desire, to orgasm, to pleasure, right? So depression is defined as lack of pleasure, right? Apathy, no longer being interested in the things that you were once interested in. So it's kind of a fine line between um, what's worse, the effects of the untreated depression or the effects of the antidepressant. Now, there are some antidepressants that have um, fewer sexual side effects um, and so would really recommend that if any of your listeners are in this situation where their antidepressant is working really well for them in terms of their depression and their mood, yet they have these sexual side effects that they really should talk to a, either a sexual medicine physician or a psychiatrist who's sex friendly, um, because there are some other treatments that can be added on. So Wellbutrin is one, for example, that's a, it's a different antidepressant. That it's actually, when, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, that when added to uh, a different antidepressant can sometimes counteract those um, those, those side effects. Um, the for for men, there is some evidence that adding Viagra can help, not with um, low uh, low desire, but if there are effects on orgasm or erections, that adding Viagra to that can sometimes help it. Um, but it, I was going to say it's not available for women, although it has been tried in some research studies. Viagra has been tried <laughs> as a way of countering the effects of antidepressants for women. And there's some, you know, preliminary data that suggests that that might work, but it's totally off label. It's not approved. It's completely experimental. Um, but yeah, I just want to emphasize, you know, untreated depression can be a really scary thing. Um, and so first and foremost, we, we want to make sure that uh, the person's depression is being cared for. Yeah. Next was uh, guilt around not having um, an orgasm from vaginal sex, uh, both female and male fears of inadequacy. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess this harkens back to the first thing we've we've talked about throughout, which is societal beliefs around what's normal, et cetera. 
And, um, you know, we, we know the, the research tells us that about one in five women experience orgasm through vaginal penetration alone. So let me turn that on its side. That means the majority of women don't reach uh, orgasm through vaginal penetration alone. And more often than not, if a woman does reach orgasm through, you know, say intercourse or other kinds of penetration, um, chances are that her clitoris is being stimulated um, from, from the inside or even from the outside or from both. So um, unfortunately, if, if people don't have access to that information and they truly believe that women only reach orgasm through sex, through vaginal penetration. Um, and if a partner can't give that, and I'm doing massive air quotes right now, <laughs> if a partner can't give that to a woman, then that expresses inadequacy on her part or on partner's part. And it doesn't matter the gender of a partner, it could be man or a woman. Again, it's through, you just see the layers and layers of myths and, um, and, and stereotypes that are, are in there. First of all, a partner doesn't give a woman an orgasm. Um, situation creates it, her own vulnerability, her own openness, her ability to tune in, her ability to ask for and get what she wants and stimulate uh, the right kind of stimulation is, is what will bring her to orgasm. So we really want to normalize the fact that most women don't reach vaginal orgasm. So once you know that and it, once you accept that as fact, um, then it eliminates a lot of, you know, the expectation and the guilt, etc. Now, unfortunately, um, if a partner has been with past partners who've reached orgasm during sex, and let's just say it's he, okay, he's been with, <laughs> with past partners who, who he's brought to orgasm during intercourse, he might bring that with him into future relationships and then make her feel inadequate. Um, uh, yet this is also something that's been researched quite a bit and women often lie about reaching orgasms. So faking orgasms yeah. mm -hmm. is really common, um, uh, as a way of, you know, making the partner feel better mostly, but also as a way of kind of finishing sex. So people lie a lot when it comes to orgasms and women are more likely to lie than, than men. So, uh, sex and orgasm, it's, it's not a competition. It's not about, you know, how quickly can we get to the prize and the finish line? It's not about that. And when we really fundamentally change how we view sex and we view it as a journey, right? We don't have to pack all of it into one encounter. It can be something that unfolds over many, many encounters, et cetera. <laughs> then that means that you never kind of reach the end, right? You're always exploring and wanting to do something new. Um, so it really is about a fundamental reframe of what counts as good sex and qualifying sex and making sure again, and I'm just going to harp on this over and over and over, making sure people have accurate information. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 It, it took me a, a while to get there, but I really feel now like sex is such an experience, like this vibe that you and the partner are, it can be right. That you and this partner are in and you're kind of like, this is maybe a little yoga situation, but, you know, you're both just in this kind of like, oh, I can't even explain it, but you're both like on the same wavelength and it just all feels so um, like magical. And that's that's the kind of sex that I'm bringing into my life. Do you know what I mean? Like back in my past, it would be to me an act. Like, it's like let's get it done. Kind yeah, of like you want to have sex. Okay, I'm fine with it, you know, penetrative sex we're done good night yes. sort of thing and then I was speaking to my therapist about be becoming more comfortable and my desire trying to 
have it go up and and I was explaining to her that I wanted it to be like an experience and we had this conversation and the first time that it happened I was like yep that's it <laughs> I was like I found it <laughs> and yeah. it's it's such a it's such a beautiful thing to to be able to get there as well to get to that point where you feel like what's so special about hero bread soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. It's an experience. I mean, just one way of enjoying yourself, but... That yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like you have pretty mindful sex, Alyssa, which, yay, <laughs> right? And, and if you're having mindful sex, it's not about getting to the end goal because mm -hmm. every step in the journey, if, if you're fully there and fully present, and I'm sort of thinking of flow the way you're describing it, and a lot of yes. sex therapists yeah. have written about flow and when, when flow is present during sexual encounters, how it feels very different and it's not, it, it becomes, it doesn't become goal oriented anymore. It's about the current, the present moment. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it just fundamentally changes it altogether. Yeah. And I think too, like worth noting that you know, because I think some people like feel uncomfortable bringing up like what they might want to try or experience or whatever. Um, but if you're having better sex, they probably are too. Mm. <laughs> they most definitely are. Yeah. So yeah. mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. I'm 27 years old. I just found a new thing I like the other day. Oh. Never experienced it before. And I was like, <laughs> excuse me? <laughs> I didn't think I was going to like that, but all right. <laughs> um, there's one that's um, a question that's how to talk to your partner about pelvic floor dysfunction and related things. Um, do you feel like that kind of falls under what we talked about with like communication and stuff like that? Or is this worth addressing separately? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty much the uh, maybe the only thing to add is, you know, pel pelvic floor dysfunction can be either too tight a pelvic floor. So in the case of vaginismus, so these are women who um, really can't have penetration of any kind, tampon, dildo, uh, pap smear exam, intercourse, et cetera. Um, or you can have the opposite, uh, very, very loose pelvic floor, which creates incontinence. So leakage of urine, leakage of feces, and, and both of those can get in the way of sex. So I often recommend that people be properly assessed by a pelvic floor physiotherapist. There's lots of them. There's lots of terrific ones um, in BC. Um, and yeah, but everything else that would fall under the topic of good communication. This is a big one. Um, how do we resolve sexual trauma? Yeah, um, resolving sexual trauma. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, unfortunately, sexual trauma, sexual abuse, sexual assault, rape, etc., is unacceptably high. And we know, you know, one in three women have been impacted by sexual assault or, or sexual trauma in, in some way. Um, we also know that um, most women who have experienced in a, a history of sexualized violence in some form will, I don't want to say get over it because you don't really get over it. It's sort of with you and you, but you sort of make room for it in your life, in your psyche, in who you are. Um, and that is the case for most women, that they are able to 
um, kind of rise above, cope and and move on. Um, But a lot of women are not. And I'm, um, you know, maybe in part I'm biased because I am a registered psychologist, but I think in in this situation in particular, I often um, will recommend that a woman who has had any experience of sexual assault in her past um, talk to a qualified healthcare provider, psychologist, sex therapist, even to find out, like, is this interfering in my life? Like, how do I know, how do I know if it is or if it isn't? Because sometimes it can manifest in really, really subtle ways. So you might not see it in very obvious ways, but it might show up as, say, hypervigilance, right? You're someone who, if the door knocks, you like jump out of your skin, right? Or if someone comes behind you unexpectedly, you sort of freak out, uh, right? So that's hypervigilance. And hypervigilance is a symptom of a post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, if it's just that symptom and nothing else, there's no um, kind of reoccurring images, there's no nightmares, there's no anxiety, there's no reimagining the situation over and over again. Person might not have PTSD, but they might still have that symptom that is a consequence of, of having a, a history of sexual trauma. Um, and it can show up in sex. So we've, we've done um, a study uh, you, actually using mindfulness in women who have a history of sexual assault. And these were women who, you know, um, were in happy, consensual relationships. They wanted to have sex with their partners. Um, and at the first moment of arousal, as soon as she noticed arousal in her body, it would trigger like dissociation. She just wouldn't be there anymore. Her mind would be either brought back to the assault or go off to just some distant place and she would not be present at all. And so we found in our research that mindfulness was a really, really, really critical tool for helping women to stay very present in their arousal and learn the safety of arousal uh, rather than escaping from it and and it worked. So I use mindfulness a lot in in my work with women with a history of sexual trauma. But I I will say that if there's um, multiple things going on, right? So let's say a sexual problem and pain and depression and anxiety and a history of sexual abuse, you really wanna make sure that you address the sexual trauma first um, because it can be the sort of foundation of of everything else. Um, I'm kind of curious, because you said that there are um, a lot of people that are able to kind of cope and, you know, move past those experiences. Um, Do you find that some of those people experience guilt or shame around the fact that they are coping with it and that it doesn't seem to bother their like sexual relationships? Um, Yeah, they, they, some women uh, do. And it's, you know, as if we're not punishing ourselves enough in so many other ways, right? Like our Mm -hmm. bodies aren't good enough. We're not smart enough. We haven't done enough in life. We also have to punish ourselves for not suffering more as a result of this unwanted sexual trauma. It's just terrible. But yes, there are some women who, who do feel bad for, for moving on. Um, And, you know, um, I think part of it might stem from there's a kind of solidarity of of sisterhood or, or women who are, you know, su- suffering and that's not meant to glorify it in any way. But I think, you know, even with the Me Too movement um, as is incredibly important as it was and as it is, um, it was also an opportunity for a lot of victims to kind of heal and grieve and work through their traumas and, and move on. 
And um, and so if you are someone who's who has done that already or didn't have to do that work or didn't need to do that work, there's sort of a feeling of being a bit on the outside or maybe even a feeling of like my assault wasn't as bad as the others. And that's mm -hmm. not true mm -hmm. at all um, because there's actually no link between the severity of the assault and one's emotional consequences of it, right? So um, it's so individual. Uh, yeah, so really tricky, difficult question. I, I'll say, you know, if any of your listeners, if this resonates for any of them, please ask for help. Again, options for sexual health can be a, a resource for pointing people in the right direction to make sure that they get the proper care and attention and, and counseling that they need. Yeah, it reminds me of, um, I read this article once about this woman who had written about having um, an abortion. And she basically was talking about how there's like so much stigma around like this belief that abortions should be inherently traumatic and like very emotionally draining and stick with you forever and something you'll probably regret and stuff like that. And she, you know, talked about how like her abortion was very it was quick, it, it didn't cause her any, a ton of pain, you know, she doesn't regret it at all, she feels very comfortable with the decision, um, and it, it kind of plays back into that conversation of, like, this idea of how we should be feeling, and if we're not feeling that way, then there, there's obviously something wrong. Yeah, again, it comes back to uh, more like, do we really need more reasons to punish ourselves? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's not yeah. us doing it. It's a lot of it is external and societal. But we, we need to um, notice when that is happening and say, you know what, I, I, I got to get out of jail free card. Let me enjoy it. Like, let me own this yeah. one. <laughs> so uh, another thing that was kind of um, asked was about LGBTQ um, plus sexual health and tips um, as it's very underserved community in that regard. Yeah. Um, great question. So um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer, two-spirit, intersex, asexual, um, those are the groups of sexually diverse individuals that, that we're, we're talking about. And it's such an important conversation because we know that um, sexually diverse individuals are less likely to get their healthcare needs met, um, mostly because they're more likely to be stigmatized by healthcare providers, they're more likely to be dismissed by healthcare providers, and thus um, the individual's less likely to seek care when they need it. So <clears throat> oftentimes it means that when there are issues um, the person has been experiencing them for a longer period of time, has not gotten the resources that they need. Um, and if it's a person who lives, say, in a rural or remote area um, where there is really no sexual health expert, like you're going to the GP in town for all your needs, and this is a very, very busy clinic, then it means that the person is even more likely to kind of not have their, their sexual health needs met. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot in LGBTQIA2S plus, et cetera, relationships that um, those of us in um, more, uh, say, vanilla or cisgender or straight relationships can learn from. And one of the things that I um, love when my friend Dan Savage talks about is how sexually diverse people have the conversation of consent nailed. Like they just, that is just front and center. It's the first thing you do is you talk about 
What are you into? What do you want to do? What do you like? How do you like to be pleasured? Um, there is no kind of awkwardness, big buildup around the consent conversation. Um, and I think that's something that for listeners who are in, in straight relationships really can learn a lot more from. And, and there's been a lot of writing in the sexual diverse um, literature around how, yeah, you know, talking about consent can actually be really, really sexy and it can be fun and it doesn't have to happen just one time. I mean, if you read um, kind of consent agreements between people who are in the um, kink community who engage in kink activities, you know, you're talking multiple pages of consent documents where there's a lot of open discussion up front about what are the green zones and, and the red zones. So I think that's um, for for um, those in, in cisgender relationships to kind of look at, at those in, with, in, within sexual diverse relationships and say, what can I learn from you? You know, you've, you're doing this really, really well. The other thing is folks in polyamorous relationships, which you don't have to be on the LGBTQ2AS spectrum to be in a poly relationship. There's lots of straight people in poly relationships as well. But we're hearing a lot more about people in these different relationship configurations where there may be two, three, four or more people in in um, in a closed relationship that are not opening up their sex to other people how do they parent how do they talk about sex how do they pay the bills together um, and I think you know where we again the rest of us stand to learn a lot from from those relationships so I think it's really healthy um, to see this increasing diversity. I think that we need better education in our medical school systems around mm -hmm. these, expressions of sexual diversity in different relationship configurations um, and rather seen rather than seen diverse as marginalized we can see it as you know variety is the spice of life and this is a mm -hmm. good thing a healthy thing so um, and and so so importantly let's stop stigmatizing them um, because yeah they they tend to be diagnosed with cancer at later state later stages they tend not to get the treatments that they need at uh, at earlier stages so all of that just has to stop um yeah so bottom line diversity is um, i think it brings uh, a lot of really fresh good new novel ideas to how we understand our own sexuality yeah that's such a what a perfect way to sum that up what a perfect way to end this episode <laughs> of our podcast. We have so many other questions that we pulled from you guys, but we just don't have enough of Dr. Brado's time, to be quite <laughs> frank. She's a, she's a busy, busy woman. Um, so if you want to try and convince her to come back again, hit the like <laughs> button so that we can convince her to come back and answer the rest of your guys' questions. Um, but thank you so much. I'm For some reason, she can't hear me, so I'm talking over into Sam's ear. But <laughs> thank you so much for being here and for sh sharing your wealth wealth of knowledge with us and with our followers. And um, it's just, it's so reinvigorating to hear you speak about mm -hmm. sex and desire and, and sexual health and... Just anything, whatever you want to talk about, I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Honestly. listening. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, thank you both so much. Uh, the, I mean, these questions are so on point and reflect of the things that people want to know more about so yeah mm -hmm. look forward to continuing the conversation next time so anyways you guys that is all for today's episode what a woman truly <sighs> i truly can't get over dr brado nor can i like we were joking before we were like we'll just give her the podcast she deserves it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
but thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you for your vulnerability and sending those questions into me. Um, it, it really helps me too as a person mm-hmm. because I, I, like Dr. Brado said, she's not immune. I'm also not immune, yeah. right? I have thoughts and feelings and, and insecurities as well. And so having this community and, and having this podcast to be able to talk about it is, I mean, it's huge, I think, for for all of us. Yeah. And I do, like, with both of the podcasts that we've left with Dr. Brado, I I do feel, like, invigorated. I feel like, yeah, like, I fucking... I'm a fucking woman, first of all. (laughs) But, like, I always leave feeling like I learned something important or she, um, you know, kind of changed my perspective on something Mm -hmm. in, you know, with things that I maybe didn't even realize I hadn't considered or, you know, she just, we were just going to sit and gush about it. (laughs) So embarrassing. (laughs) Fangirls of Dr. Brada. She needs her own podcast if she doesn't have one. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I would, I'd pay, I'd pay for that. Yeah. Yeah. But then maybe she won't come on ours. Yeah, this is, okay, dangerous, slippery slope, like, leave well enough alone. Yeah, (laughs) kidding. Okay, you guys, we will see you in the next one. Thanks. Bye.